Welcome to the Feeling Bookish Podcast. My name is Rob Fay. I'm in Portland, Oregon, and joined as usual by uh, Roman Sivkin in New York City. And uh, today on the show, we're doing something a little bit different. We're really pleased to have uh, a wonderful guest uh, on the show. His name is Josh Calvo, and he is a uh, writer and translator uh, and also finishing up his PhD uh, at Princeton University. And um, uh, he is a translator of uh, Arabic and Hebrew literature. So we're going to chat with him. Uh, But Roman, I I wanted to kind of... give the audience a sense of, of how we kind of got to this topic. You and I were chatting one day and, and I said, you know, there's this really fabulous uh, new show on Netflix called uh, Stichel. And I, I was listening and it's a, it's a show about a um, <clears throat> Haredim or ultra-Orthodox family in present-day Jerusalem. And obviously it's in Hebrew, but I, I thought I was hearing a lot of Yiddish. Um, and so I said, Roman, you know, uh, uh, What's the status of Yiddish in in modern day uh, kind of Israel? And and you were saying, well, uh, I'm not I'm not sure if you're you're hearing Yiddish. And it turned out that the older characters uh, in the in the drama uh, were still uh, using Yiddish because, of course, many of them uh, had connections to Eastern Europe and Russia. And so we started talking about languages in Israel. And I was also reading. Um, the amazing French novel um, Compass by Matthias Enar. And um, you remember, Roman, we started talking about uh, the Mediterranean as a cultural unit um, uh, because of the wonderful explorations in that book. And you said to me, said, look, if you're kind of jonesing on this thing, I really recommend you go to the Untranslated blog and you read, which is a great blog, by the way, and you read this interview with this guy, Josh Calvo. And so um, I did, and I don't know. I just felt like we got to talk to this guy. <laughs> well, yeah, that that interview is just is just amazing. I mean, it, obviously, it took place in writing and over a long period of time. But it, uh, I urge all of our listeners to find the untranslated blog, put it in their favorites because it's an amazing blog, and particularly read this um, interview that has. We'll talk about a lot of the themes in that interview. Uh, but it's just so much richer just to actually read it on your own, to see the names, to see to see what's you know how Josh really approaches everything. Um, it's it really it was quite wonderful. And you're right about the, the, that that novel Compass. It's uh, uh, what I liked about it is it kind of bridged the divide between East and West, and kind of sort of kind of showed how permeable that border is how it's not really a border how things flow back and forth between the two um and josh's interview just kind of reinforced that i think even though yeah. it, it does come from a from our perspective a very different part of the world uh, so um so so josh you know that's how we kind of came uh to your work uh so welcome and i i think the one of the first things I want to dive into, which was pretty central to your interview, was um, your experience reading um, Days of Ziklag by S. Yizhar, the Israeli writer. Um, and so this is unavailable right now in English. Um, but your, your, your experience with this book really got me fired up. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about this book and why, it, why it's so important and exciting for you. Yeah, absolutely. And and first of all, just thank you guys both so much for, for having me. This is really exciting. And, you know, I, I'm used to bothering people with my pontificating. It's nice to actually have a forum where people want to hear me 
talk about this stuff. But um, God, you know, I, I think I even say this in the interview. Um, I mean, I obviously start to get going, but um, anytime anyone even mentions Ciclag, it's, it's such an enormity. It's such a gargantuan undertaking that I, I, I start to get a little bit dizzy just thinking about where to approach it. Um, it's uh, it's one of those novels that's a known quantity in its own particular literary tradition. That is to say, almost everyone who has a literary bent, whether academic or non-academic, is aware that this really big, uh, insurmountable novel exists. Uh, but very few people read it. And in, in fact, there's a, a very funny um, Israeli comedy skit where the uh, they reenact the... Israel Prize for the year the book came out, and they sort of pretend that the members didn't even read it. In other words, <laughs> even the people awarding the prize, like, they know nothing about the book, and then they have the author come up, and he knows nothing about the book. So it, it I don't know, I, I, it's not written like Finnegan's Wake, but it has that kind of reputation of insurmountability. It does not have the reputation of Ulysses, where there actually are, you know, a dedicated group of people who do read it and talk about it, both in and out of the Academy. Yeah. Um, it's an amazing book, you know. I mean, it's 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 in a way encapsulates everything that one might stereotypically think about when one thinks about what is Israeli literature, what is modern Hebrew literature, what what are its themes, what are its advantages, what are its limits. Um, but it it really transcends them, and um, I haven't really found very many what I felt were at least satisfying um, readings of the book in in English language um, responses, but um, my feeling is that at, at its core, even though it's about war and it's about, um, you know, the inner life and emotions and a nation and, you know, all these big um, political and non-political themes, it really does feel to me like a defense um, uh, of art, um, a, a, a sort of a tribute to the power and meaning of art. Um, and the necessity and, of art. And, and, you know, this is, I think, precisely get, you got right to why I think Roman and I were really excited by uh, your interview. And is, is that one of the interesting things about, I actually did a little bit of research about what have other people said about this novel? And I actually found an article that came out, a fairly scholarly article, um, around the time the novel was published in the late 50s, early 60s, by a man named Robert Atler in a journal called Judaism, a quarterly journal. I'm, I'm not sure if that's still around. But the, the, it was a careful look at the novel, but what it focused on is, you know, is this a critique of uh, Zionist ideology? And it also yeah. spent a lot of time on the, the establishment's reaction in Israel to this book. You know, this is... Um, there's one here that said, um, I can't quite find the quote here, but what what was so different about this uh, critic's look at the book and what got me excited in your interview, um, like you wrote, for example, uh, Days of Ziklag is a regenerative feast of language, weaving together varied reg registers of literary Hebrew, state colloquial Hebrew, military terminology, Palestinian Arabic, Russian and Yiddish. And then uh, later you said the result of this book has been described as something like attacking the impossible task of capturing, quote unquote, the real from all sides, from every grammatical tense, uh, etc. And so 
this is what I think in, in, this is what excites me about novels. It's not the critique of the socio-political uh, environment. And so is, is this the very reason that this book has not been translated into English? Is it because it, it is truly a work of art and not something that can be distilled into a, a, a point of view on geopolitics? Uh, that's a great question, um, and uh, I- I'll say before I answer it, just to be, just to give Robert Alter his due, um, he is. I don't know if you know anything about the the writer that you happen to mention just now, the scholar. I don't. No. He's oh, so he's still he's the a big name uh, in Hebrew, and and he actually has this translation of the of the entire Hebrew Bible that he's been doing over the last couple of decades, and it just recently came out in in full um, in this big fat uh, Norton set. Um, so that's his thing, but he, he sort of started a whole school of scholarship in Hebrew literature at Berkeley, and that article is, I think, really early in his tenure. And yes. uh, I totally agree with you. It's, um, I mean, to be fair to him, it, it's somewhat reductive, but it's totally in keeping with how the novel was understood when it came out, and part of the reason why it was understood as such and ignored for its its literary merits or its or its magic, quite frankly, is because Yishar was a member of Knesset. I mean, he was an Israeli public figure, and um, it, it's it's very hard to dis- talk about him as a kind of Israeli Joyce or Israeli Proust or whatever you want to call it, because. He was directly engaged in the kind of nationalist debates of his time. He even tended to vote slightly to the right of center. Uh, famously voted to retain the the military embargo on um, the martial law on Arab citizens of Israel in the fifties. But um, yeah, I mean, there just there hasn't been, I don't think, other than a, a very f- small amount of people who have really dug their teeth into what the novel actually is. And um, I I mean, whether or not that's the reason why it hasn't been translated is a tough question, because on the one hand, that sort of involves the question of can it be translated, which is its Mm. own kind of animal of a discussion. Mm. And then the other is um, uh, the somewhat boring conversation of what gets translated and what doesn't, which is something that academics like to talk about ad nauseum. But uh, it's not the sort of work that is liable to be translated from a publisher's perspective. And um, it's not the sort of work that's liable to be translated at this point, even from a political perspective. It's, it's totally alien in terms of the, the, the historical and political grounding of that book is totally alien to both modern Israel and modern contemporary understanding of what Hebrew literature is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll also say just briefly that the, the only uh, piece of um, Yisrael that we have in English is um, a very, very well translated um, novella called Chirbet Chize. And um, that, even though it's now available from FSG in a kind of nice little paperback, that couldn't even find a major publisher back when it was first put out. It was put out by Ibis Press, which was a small little um, press run by Peter Cole and his wife um, in Jerusalem, and they would put out authors that had some sort of relationship to the Mediterranean. Um, and it's a shame that that press went down because they they did some some really wonderful things. But they were the ones that initially put it out, and it was out of print until FSG picked it up again. And and and, and everyone's read Chilbert Chizeh. I mean, anyone people 
even people who, who haven't even touched um, Yemetzi Klag know about Chirbat Chizeh. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when you, um, um, the, the reviews of this um, FSG uh, edition online are tremendous um, of the novella. Um, they're almost universally, in, in fact, some of them um, uh, are really striking for how this, this novella seemed to really s- deeply affect people. Um, you would think that FSG would then maybe look at the, at the tougher work and say, well, maybe you can ride some of the, the coattails of this novella. Well, right? maybe it Why didn't sell. It didn't sell. No. I don't know. I mean, if it was going to be a kind of big commercial press, I guess it would be FSG. And I have lost touch with the current co-translators, Yaakov Dweck and um, Nicholas Delange. Um, they, when I last spoke with them over a year ago, they were about halfway through translating Tsiklag, and I have no idea where they're going to publish it. Um, but there uh, seems to be so many like, little publishers lately uh, coming out with some major publications. Um, oh yeah, there are options. There's kind of a, like almost like a revival of, you know, small publishing houses putting out uh, important work. Yeah, so absolutely. Maybe there's hope. No, you know? uh, let's hope there's hope. Yeah. <laughs> Meta hope. Um, and you know, you you uh, said when you were reading this book that it it became a totally consuming experience, and you were really living uh, the reality of this book. And I think Roman and I have talked a lot about this, and I think this is why we read to actually have to 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 find books where. Um, Suddenly, you're, you're, you look up from the, the couch or wherever you're reading, and, and everything seems heightened and transformed. And, uh, it, it, you know, we all read a lot. I, I can't say that that happens all that often. Um, but when it does, it's an incredible experience. Um, uh, Robert Bolano's 2666 is a book that, you know, s- somewhat recently just I, I lived that book. I, I think you put it perfectly um, tell me a little bit about the stylistic aspects of this book in Hebrew. Again, I, I quoted you talking about the, I'm really interested in the various registers uh, that he uses. And so he was a member of Knesset. H- how, did he, um, how did he have access to all levels of Israeli society to really understand um, these various dialects, etc. This is fascinating to me. Yeah, well, um, one piece that is a little bit beneath the surface from our perspective is that Israeli Hebrew, um, such as it was spoken in Yishal's day, was uh, very much a a baby language. And um, so a fair amount of his borrowings or dipping into different sort of spoken languages um, is, is, uh, you could say, a a factor of necessity. And um, the history of uh, the so-called Hebrew revival is a kind of history of attempting to figure out how to write modern literature in a language that you know, doesn't have, not even just doesn't have the lexical ability to tackle, you know, what's a refrigerator or whatever, but also doesn't have a kind of stream of consciousness to it. And the the solution has historically been from Yishar's progenitor, uh, Uri Nisan Gnesen, the main solution has been, well, let's turn to spoken languages in, in, in the kind of atmosphere of where we're writing and use those to guide our Hebrew. 
So that's one piece of the, the different registers. Um, another piece is that, um, I don't know if register becomes appropriate to this thing, but it, it, it's almost as if he's writing in different voices. So there yeah. are first person plural, long sort of collective, they're not quite Greek chorus responses, but they're these sort of collective stream of consciousness pieces. There are third person authorial, incredibly poetic, descriptive, uh, you know, painting a picture with words kind of pieces. Um, and then there are individual characters uh, having their own kind of internal monologues going. And then there are uh, pieces of sort of dialogue and pieces of external text. So one of the characters is a poet. Um, and some of, the, some of the most amazing parts of the book, to me, are the parts when this particular character, the, um, I think, I think uh, he's a sapper, I think that's the word in English, His, uh, he's sitting down and, and writing poetry in the midst of this battlefield. Mm -hmm. um, and so, almost of necessity, um, there's a lot going on in terms of the language. Yeah. It doesn't have the kind of, I would say in terms of language registers, if we have to make a comparison to to novels that your listeners might be more familiar with, it's not quite like Joyce, where you pick up the oxen of the sun in Ulysses and you can see Middle English, Old English, you could see all these different sort of styles in a, in a very bombastic and explosive and to some people prohibitive uh, way on the page. I don't think it's prohibitive, but but some people are kind of turned, it's, a too, it's too much for them. Um, it's more like Proust, you know, I mean, Proust has this kind of ornate, almost quasi 19th century style, but he manages to do quite a lot with it um, over the, you know, several thousand pages of his massive book. And um, it's more subtly woven. So there, there is a kind of mixing of registers, but it's not, it's not, uh, it doesn't have the effect of a kind of collage where you can sort of see the colors and they're very much in your face. It's, it's more of a kind of blending. It's actually a very gentle book. Um, and um, I forgot to mention also the other, the other language piece that's important is that Yishar was inventing words. And when the book came out for the second time in, uh, I think, 1989, which is an interesting story in and of itself, uh, he went through it, the, the, older, um, the older published edition, and actually took out a fair amount of the made-up words. Interesting. Uh, um, yeah. And, and, you know, you you mentioned uh, a while back, you said there is one question is, can this novel be translated uh, into English? And, and I assume you're, you're getting at the challenge the translator would have with all of these. Um, I'll just use the word registers. Yeah, um, no, it's fine. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking a little bit, you mentioned Proust and there's a wonderful um biography of um, his English translator, C.K. Scott Moncrief. I don't know if you, it's called Chasing Lost Time by a woman named uh, Jean Finley. And I, I don't think you get a lot of biographers of translators. <laughs> so mm. so um, this is kind of an interesting book, but um, it really kind of dived into, you know, the challenge that Moncrief faced uh, with, with Proust. And, and ultimately uh, his translation uh, is, I think, the standard, it's quite beloved, but it's, um, he really takes a lot of, um, he really took Proust's French into himself and, and 
became an artist or was an artist and, and took a lot of imaginative and lyrical leaps, um, I think, with the language. And, and so yeah. um, what would be required of, of, a, of a translator to, to, to approach this particular book? Um, would he need to be a, a novelist in his soul or in her soul? to do this um yeah i mean i i do think so um i mean at, at the risk of sort of excluding the a large portion of the very small portion of human beings that define themselves as translators yeah i i i, I think that translation uh, it serves a lot of functions it's it's good when a book comes out in translation sometimes it's good even when the the translation is terrible i mean sometimes the attitude one has to take is okay it's better than nothing i mean i find myself feeling this way sometimes when novels in arabic come out in translation sometimes and i'm dissatisfied with the translation but at least it's available um and then I think when you when you talk about you know the Yizharos of the world, um, on the one hand, if something came out and it was sort of minimally accurate but artistically flat, well, no one would read it. But no one reads it anyway, even in the original. <laughs> so, you know, at least it can be assigned in a class at some point, or at least someone who wants to pursue it and has a kind of you know Hebrewphilia that they're that they're nursing. You know they can read side by side. That, that, that at least there's some very small niche of readers. But if if this book is to kind of, I mean, uh, Moncrief is a great example because not only is he an artist in his own right, yes, he's also strictly. I mean, he is totally responsible for Proust's reputation in English. Um, and uh, it, the recent retranslation, which was done by Penguin Press, um, yes, uh, Lydia, uh, yes, right, Lydia Davis, yeah, so, yeah. yeah, Lydia. Well, they they did a very peculiar thing. They they started doing this, I think, in the late '90s, and they got a committee of translators. Uh, yes, each person would do a different volume. Yes, so that is kind of a messy thing, and they had some, some kind of yeah, they had some house styles. It's actually you you can't get it in the United States yet because of our copyright laws. They just came out with the prisoner. So they've still got um, they've still got two more volumes uh, before yes. they and, reach the end. And I think they were also concerned about assigning one translator to do all seven uh, volumes would right. might be an You'd impossible task for a lifetime. They die, basically. <laughs> yeah, and and then I think the other piece is that so if Moncrief is strictly responsible for Proust in English, and and he is such a great stylist in and of himself. The the problem that the Penguin editors um, identified is that there is as much Moncrief as there is Proust in those translations. Mm. That's a bump. That's a bold statement, and I'm not sure I fully agree with it. But that was their observation, and that's why they felt okay. Let's get a let's get a polyphonic sort of translational approach here, and it's sort of like converging lines of evidence. Proust will emerge from all of these different people tackling in earnest the problem of, of, of yeah. translate. I, I don't think that's the way to go with with Yishar at all. I, I'm yeah. not even sure if it was the way to go with Proust. Yeah. But, um, yeah. yeah translation know. by committee. I don't, yeah, I don't know about that. It worked for King James, and that might be it. Mm. Yeah, you know, Moncrief with, um, he he drew boldly from Shakespeare with a lot of the, the titles. Yeah. Um, yeah, Remembrance of Things Past is... Um, I think it has some reference to to Shakespeare, where it's an uh, is it okay? Yeah, where the the kind of current 
uh, title is, you know, In Search of Lost Time is, I guess, more accurate. But I'm, I, I, I don't know if accuracy is is what you're wanting to deal with with Proust. But I, I don't want to sidetrack the conversation into Proust, which I always tend to do. But um, me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I can I can sort of add a little bit. This is Roman. I just want to you know like well, like Pasternak's and you know, Pasternak's uh, translations of Shakespeare into Russian which uh, many Russians claim are even better than the original, which is, you know, sacrilege. But uh, <laughs> but I've read some of those translations, and they are incredible. Um, so it, it does, I think for something of such high quality, you need somebody, a translator, who has a really, who's very sensitive to style, who's very sensitive to these things, and who's a, you know, a master on his own right, or her right. You know, it's 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 kind of you kind of have to have that really fine artistic sensibility uh, not to mention the knowledge of the language to really get it right and that rarely happens you know yeah and i think you also have to accept that even in those cases where you have a somewhat iconoclastic artistically minded translator tackling a really difficult text the end result it is going to lack something you know like there's always going to be a remainder or something left out and that's okay you know uh, just thinking about the word accuracy it, it's so often a benchmark um when we discuss you know the value of a given translation and i often think it's used in the wrong way um I, there, there's there's more than one kind of accuracy there's more than one kind of you know someone might criticize a translation for being too difficult or too hard on the reader there's more than one kind of difficult there's more than one kind of idiomatic there there are a lot of options i mean i think everyone in this conversation prefers the moncrief end of things um and the other end of things has its place too yeah i i you know the the one issue i i may sort of quibble uh with is um in terms of sometimes it's just better to just have a translation, even if it's a uh, not quite up to snuff. My my wife is from Japan, and she's uh, quite an avid reader, and, and she kept uh, recommending the Japanese novelist uh, Shusaku Endo, who is actually a Christian uh, Japanese writer. So he's got a very That's peculiar, great. yeah, very peculiar uh, point of view from a Japanese perspective. And um, she was obsessed with a novel called The River, about a mm. Japanese character that goes to India uh, in search of enlightenment, and so I happened to find a you know a copy in a in a used bookstore, and and as soon as I started reading it, I I don't read Japanese, but I'm you know a fairly sensitive reader, and I I just realized I was dealing with just awful awful stuff, and I I could <laughs> not I could not understand why anyone would find this book uh, interesting. It was almost like a kind of um, uh, f- high schoolers imitation of Hemingway prose, you know, just yeah. the, sun, the sun rose, the river was cool, you know, this kind of thing. So I, I know that's a, uh, a rat, a rabbit hole to go down, uh, as far as translations. Um, but, you know, I, I want to get a little bit to, um, there's a million things I want to talk to you about, but I also want to talk uh, a bit about Arabic literature. Please. Um, because that certainly doesn't get um, uh, enough mind space for people. And one of the things you said, which is absolutely fascinating, and I, I want to just quote that here. Um, forgive me, give me one second. You were um, somewhat making a reference to the Egyptian novelist um, 
Nagib Malfis. Uh, let's see here. Josh, how, uh, do you, so, how would you pronounce that, by the way? <laughs> Mahfouz. Mahfouz. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I won't go there. Um, so uh, you're also talking about um, the, uh, uh, I believe he's a Kurdish writer, uh, Salim Barakat. Yeah. And, and you said, you know, um, beyond Barakat, a word about the situation of Arabic translation generally. Like Hebrew, there exists in the English reading world a bias toward Arabic novels that reinforce our stereotypes uh, of what Arabic literature is or should be. And I'm not even talking about Nagib Malfis, whose works are extensively available thanks to his Nobel win. Um, and then you said, um, you know, I'm talking about our bias towards translating and consuming Arabic novels that seem cued directly to subjects on syllabi in Middle Eastern studies, college classes. And um, this also makes me think a little bit of, uh, to go back to the novel Compass uh, with Anar and, and sort of that, that critique of Edward Said's critique of, you know, the uh, Orientalist kind of academics in that, um, you know, I'm going to butcher this whole area, but more or less the idea of uh, in, in the West, we've imposed a kind of fanciful romantic, uh, you know, image upon the peoples of India and the Middle East and North Africa, one that um, satisfies our desire for whatever, the mysterious in the exotic. Um, and so to go back to, to Malthus, I, I adore the Cairo trilogy as many people do. And, and I have to admit, I, I think, um, you know, some of what I adore is this romantic sense of, you know, Egypt and the turn of the 20th century and these small streets and these cloistered, uh, families and, you know, the, the British colonial troops marching up and down the road and this kind of thing. Um, help, help me out. Dig a little bit into your thoughts on this, on this area of, of what, what we see in the West as far as translated, um, how much of it is filtered through this Orientalism uh, that, that Edward Said has sort of pointed out um, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, it's it's a, a mouthful, but um, yeah. I, I do think it was nice that you mentioned Anal too, because he, he sort of pushes back um, against Said. Because the thing is, is that Said wrote this book Orientalism um, that came out uh, toward the end of the twentieth century, and that says, you know, in a word, the West's projection of its notion of the East has more to do with its own sort of desire and complex and whatever than any sort of actual East. And what Anal comes and says in that novel, and I, I love it because it's it's the only novel I've ever read that actually does a good job of of, of quote unquote intervening in scholarship and, and <laughs> debasing right. it. Exactly. As I, yes. So it sort of says like, well, okay, that was a good point. Thank you, Mr. Said. I'm, I'm glad that you said that. But now there's a whole industry of people who walk around in the world and look at some other, whether it's a film or a movie or whatever, and they say, oh, that's not the real East. That yeah. is an inaccurate Orientalist blah blah And the thing about that is that 
you end up sort of <laughs> reifying the notion that Said was out to dispel you of, namely that there is such a thing as the East and there is such a thing as the West. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I think I think Anar would give you permission to sort of uh, to use a, a, a pejorative word to romanticize Egypt a little bit. I mean, we all need a little romance in our lives, and yeah. um, the the literary and um, intellectual and and spiritual imaginations of the Orientalists. I mean, they weren't all they weren't all you know uh, colonial agents. I mean, even the people who are sort of vaguely associated with power. You know, you have a, you you have cases of people who end up converting to Islam and moving to the region. There's one famous Hungarian Orientalist who did this, but um, I, I I do think that in terms of the translation situation today, um, that does have a lot to do not just with Orientalism and I guess counter Occidentalism or whatever you want to call it more broadly, but it's also really just about. Um, a weird cabal of things. I mean, on the one hand, there's kind of our increasingly debased um, large publishing industry that is really very rarely willing to take risks. And the increasing um, academization of all arts, but literature in particular, and, and how literary-minded people and people working on literary sorts of things end up, to some degree, making their daily bread off the academy. And um, the, the core unit of the academy is the, the, the class and the syllabus and the conference and the blah blah and um, and that sort of has, I mean, some of the translations that I'm referring to in the interview or that I'm sort of, you know, knocking down a size a little bit, if I can be so cocky, are old. I mean, they're not even that, I mean, this is what I was thinking when you mentioned the Japanese translations, because in a way, this situation is kind of similar, except that there are a lot of great translators working on Japanese right now, publishing with great presses like New Directions. And a lot of novelists like like Endo and like um, who's another what's that other famous Japanese novelist wrote a book about sand and it wound up um, being a very famous movie, uh, Woman in the Dunes. I can't remember the name of the novelist, but mm. that that also I mean those translations were done in the sixties and seventies in a completely different cultural, political, and academic environment. Um, at one that actually resembles the situation of Arabic literature more broadly today. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's, yes. Because I, I think, you know, with people like Murakami and his writing uh, in The New Yorker on a regular basis, there does seem to be um, a renaissance of, of translation from Japan. I, I would agree with that for sure. Oh, people want to read it too. Yeah. People want to read it beyond, I mean, Japan has become a quasi-European country in the minds of American readers in that people are able to read it read a book by, I mean, Murakami is a good example. People are able to read Japanese novels without necessarily thinking about Japan or without necessarily mm. having an interest in Japan as a kind of obsessive thing. That's not yet the case with Arabic. Arabic does not have the, is not thought of as having the dignity of a kind of um, uh, self-sufficient literary tradition. And it very much is in its own language. I mean, uh, I would in no way want to disparage Arabic literature. It just, by the looks of its translation into English, it's a kind of a grim, grim situation. Yeah, it does not look good. Yeah, because it's it's really hard to find anything. Uh, well, you mentioned some of the books that are not even translated at all by by, by Barakat, right? He's a major writer, 
Absolutely. published a lot and a lot, a lot of really great sounding, you know, great sounding books. Yet we have nothing in English. It's it's really a bad situation. It is, and um, for my part, I'm I'm trying to translate him, um, but uh, I'm also, and myself and other earnest-minded people who are trying to tackle these things are up against a lot. I mean, they're up against the lack of interest from publishers, and I can say personally that I found it very hard to get publishers. I mean, you'd think Selim Barakat is marketable. I mean, people were thinking very much about, and still are, uh, Syrian Kurds are in the news. I mean, it's not yes, something, yes, exactly. Yes. Like, right. you'd think that it's the kind of thing, you walk into McNally Jackson in New York, and uh, it'll be on the shelf, someone will pick it up and read it on the subway. Oh, home. it'll be big in New York. I, I, I think New York is an exception. I mean, people will snap yeah, it up true. here. That's um, true. That's why that's why the the lack of interest from publishers seems to be mystifying. It just doesn't make sense. Well, um, I, I think again, Josh, you you got very close to answering this when you said, so when our understanding of the worth of literary text is limited in this socio-historical way, when we conceive of novels and poems as being merely fanciful mirrors of historical and social context, we should not be surprised that what is newly translated will fit uh, too narrowly into these syllabi. Um, tailored categories. And, um, you know, just anecdotally, I r recall uh, there was some uh, resurgence of some interviews with Amos Oz because he died recently. And there was a Terry Gross interview. And, you know, he, right away, he just said, you know, everything I write is suddenly framed as, you know, oh, what can we learn about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict? Um, and I, I just felt horrible for him that he had to, uh, you know, trot this out every time and he's like look you know i think he was a veteran of the the six-day war and he's like look you know uh look i'm involved i'm involved in this project called israel yes but you know i, I write about people um and it you know there's this wonderful uh passage from vladimir Nabokov's lectures on literature where he he tells his students straight up he says you know can we expect to glean information about places and times from a novel. Can anybody be so naive as to think that he or she can learn anything about the past from these buxom bestsellers that are hawked around by book clubs under the heading of historical novels? But what about the masterpieces? Can we rely on Jane Austen's picture of landowning England with baronets and landscape grounds when all she knew was a clergyman's parlor? And he goes on and on. And then finally, he answers his own question. He says, certainly not. <laughs> well, also, I mean, should we, uh, even if we could, right, exactly. is, it, should is we? that where we should go digging around for objective um, historical information about a given point in time? No. Yeah, we can, we yeah. can, go, to the, we can no. go to the archives of the New York Times and look stuff yeah, up. Exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. Though, though I, I do, I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a fan at all of historical fiction at all. However... Once in a while, I read something that has those elements, and it's nice to imbibe that kind of information because, I mean, it's it sounds trivial and stupid, but you know, uh, I end up knowing a lot more things to answer on Jeopardy, for instance, you know, <laughs> just from reading novels because of their historical context that I learned, you know, in passing, so to speak, while I'm enjoying the the style or or the other artistic elements of the book. And you pick up these facts, and yeah, they're 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 good in your head. And for Jeopardy, but that's not why we read them, right? Absolutely. Well, look, I, yeah. I'm I'm obsessed with this question of, you know, why should we even read novels? And so, one of the best answers I ever heard was from the venerable Yale professor Harold Bloom, 
And he said, look, in a lifetime, there are only so many human beings we can actually meet and befriend. And he said, the one thing that reading novels gives us is the ability to meet another mind. And I think maybe that's the best answer I've ever heard. Um, uh, you know, I, I feel like I, I can meet that particular mind. The, the idea that I'm, I'm learning about, you know, Irish society or, um, you know, the, the role of the Catholic Church in Ireland or whatever it is, that kind of stuff, uh, I, I can turn to a lot of other sources um, for that kind of information. And I, I, th I think this is what continues to plague the so-called, you know, literary world. I, I live near Powell's bookstore here in Portland, Oregon, venerable place, a lot of writers come through. Um, there's usually a very, very impressive showing for readings by you know, literary writers, uh, by fiction writers. But when the Q&A comes up, it's invariably people try to tie it to some socio-political aspect. If it's an African-American writer, they will ask about uh, that writer's experience um, you know, with discrimination, et cetera, or they tend to fall back on questions about, you know, how did you feel when you wrote this? Is this something from your own life? There is no, no one seems to have the ability to frame the work within uh, the body of work that, that has come before it to, to ask any questions about the formal structure of the book. So I don't know, maybe it's just the fact that we, we, we've all, nobody knows how to read books anymore. Well, look, I, 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 I was born in 1993, so I can't claim to have seen this in the long durée, but I think that this has always been a problem for literature. Um, I think that, yes, our screen-distracted culture is particularly adverse to the kind of attention that really uh, soul-enriching literature will require, or any soul-enriching sort of art. But I also think that, um, in general... You know, I mean, I don't mean to disparage folk tales. I quite like folk tales, and uh, like anyone else, was raised on them. But I think the distinction between, uh, you know, a, a folk, a collection of folk tales that a community has been exchanging for a long time, and the individual work of a given author is that. On the one hand, the folktales are kind of like this repository of information that the community is preserving mm. um, and modifying and taking things out and deleting things over generations, and that's a beautiful thing. But on the other hand, the work of art is this kind of intensively wrought individual, um, and I'm unable to talk about this except in religious terms, but it, it, it is a kind of spiritual document. It's unique. It's, 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 it's um, to use the words that you quoted from Bloom, it's the product of another mind. It is not mineable for, or should not be mineable for, you know, information or moral or less. Yes, preach. And, and let me just say, by the way, that if I were a dictator, the first thing I would do <laughs> is make Q&As writ large, illegal, completely illegal. <laughs> they are the worst ordeal in, in the, just, they're horrible. Um, for reasons that you've suggested and more, um, they're, they're so terrible. Well, here, here, Josh, if you don't mind, I, I'm going to uh, pull a little quote from um, that interview you did with un the Untranslated blog that goes to this point. Uh, it's You talk about Ciclog, 
And, and the quote goes, for me, the heart of the book, the fire that kept me joyously struggling through the desert, the secret ingredient to fatally, you know, so fatally misread by Kurzweil is one of the critics, uh, was its constant searching for human meaning and its belief, however shaken by the horrors of war and the existential emptiness that military combat stirs in the souls of those doomed to fight it, uh, in the magical, the, the belief in the magical or divine capacity of language, human language, that is with all its color and scope. Uh, to convey or to comprehend in fits of inspiration or in subtle searchings, or else to struggle or to battle with, or to otherwise approach, enact, and make real meaning. Yeah, uh, who is this guy with these crazy long sentences? God. <laughs> this guy is you, man, and you write wonderfully. But by the way, I want to talk about a little bit later on is your own writing, because the writing in this interview, man, is 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 top-notch. I mean, it's, it's, it's literary, it's, um, it's, there's no fluff. Uh, you just, I mean, I really love it. So, but, but my point is this, that this, this, this ability to convey real meaning besides the historical incidental facts, you know, that, you know, we're just talking about, that's, um, somehow important things the human need to say and have to, you know, said to like, like somebody is hearing you some, the other, you call them. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, somebody's listening in the void, God, your girlfriend. And then the, the interesting thing is. Um, I was reading this um, obscure British science fiction writer who's one of my uh, sort of uh, most favorite writers in the world, not because of his style, particularly because of his mind. Uh, his name is Barrington J. Bailey. He died about 11 years ago. Relatively obscure. He was big in the new wave uh, science fiction movement uh, in Britain in the 70s. Uh, uh, but basically, he has this story called The God Gun. Uh in which the there's there's two friends they hang out in the pub they talk once in a while they don't particularly like each other but just you know they're kind of lonely so they they stick to each other and one of them is kind of this inventor and he invents this laser gun and through this weird uh, explanation that kind of makes sense in context of the story he ends up killing God right it's a huh. very short story so he kills God. But what happens? Nothing really happens. Um, but here's the end of the, of, the, of the story that I want to read. I think it has a connection to what you were trying to say with this meaning conveyance. Um, so uh, not in Roderick alone. Roderick is the guy who invented the God gun and killed God. Not in Roderick alone do I notice the difference. I see it in everything and in everyone, including myself. Conversation these days is mechanical and repetitive. And one has but to look into people's eyes to realize that they are all dead inside. Life continues in a fashion, of course. The machinery of the universe grinds on, but the days and nights have a blankness about them, a tedious emptiness. There are sunsets, dawns, the phases of the moon, the processions of the seasons, but all unenlivened by that majestic ambience that formerly shone through them. Wow. So, isn't that great? Uh, yeah, it's fantastic. Bite, please remember this name, Barrington J. Bailey. I can send you a bunch of his short stories if you want because they're hard, hard, hard to find. But he uh, he was been called he was called the the secret Zen master of science fiction by by Norman Spinrad. So he's really really worth checking out. But anyway, my point is that there is that something that real meaning which which uh, is almost um, is almost beyond language, but it's not really um, language tends to capture, but it only in a verb verb sense. It's it's you can't stop and and have it concretely in front of you. It's it's a, it's a moving target. Um, so, and also I wanted to ask about your languages, man, because your languages are incredible. <laughs> um, 
another quote, uh, and this is this goes to something that's dear to me because um, I don't know if you know my background. Just let me just quickly tell you, just so you know where I'm coming from. Sure. I was born in Russia in Saint Petersburg when I was six, so I just barely got the you know the the lay of the land, so to speak, the cultural linguistic land of my my home country, Russia. But so at the age of six, I moved to Jerusalem. Crazy, crazy move. Very different <laughs> world. I start, uh, you know. Learning the language, the culture. I just get comfortable with it at the age of thirteen. I'm just becoming an Israeli, you know, just there. And we move again. We move to Boston. So here I am in a yet another different culture, very, very different culture, <laughs> having to learn the you know the whole thing again, the language, the culture, how to how to just be in this in this particular country. Um, so my question to you, uh, Josh, is, and here let me just quickly give people an idea that you you also learned Arab. You grew up in an Arabic uh, Jewish community, right, on the Jersey Shore, that you you heard Arabic spoken, yes. and Hebrew spoken, mm-hmm. and you prayed in Hebrew. Uh, um, so, But then you actually, as an academic and, and as a reader, you decided to really jump into these languages and really learn them. And here's the quote, uh, as my Arabic eclipsed my Hebrew, and then my Hebrew leapt ahead of my Arabic, the one language always leapfrogging over and encircling and mixing with the other, I discovered more writers in and between the two languages, and discovered myself as a writer and would-be critic by devouring texts that I wish I'd written myself. So much so, I sometimes feel that even in my best Anglo-Saxon English, I am always articulating myself somewhere between Hebrew and Arabic, whether I want to or not. So this is the key point that I want to ask you about, Josh. This, this uh, in-betweenness of languages, and even though you're 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 using English, uh, but you're this had this kind of weird in the background. You get this Hebrew and Arabic working underneath the English, and I find myself in a very similar position. While I love English and I really took to it at the age of thirteen, boy, did I take to it! And Rob can tell you how much I read at that time because mm. we became <laughs> friends when I moved to this country. Um, uh, and I really just I just imbibed as much English as I could because I really didn't have a complete handle on Russian. Yeah, I can read Dostoevsky in Russian, uh, you know, but I don't. I feel like an idiot speaking Russian to, let's say, people in Brooklyn. I just feel like a like a, a particularly slow third grader or something like that, you know. Um, um, so, so I wanted to ask you about your your languages, how you sort of imbibe them, how you learn them, and how do you navigate between them, and how to, you know, it's just really fascinating to me because it's very close to home. Yeah, no, that uh, it's a very rich territory. Um, and let me say before I get to your point to, to this question, um, I think we should circle back to the that that real meaning piece because I actually have two quotes, one from Yishar and one from Berakat that I can read out if if you guys would like. Sure, uh, I think they'd be appropriate sort of ways of demonstrating um, what drew me to both of them. But in any case, uh, just about. Languages. Um, I am a strange person, and uh, my strangeness is um, located in, in, in an addiction to languages and cultures and literatures and, and music to a degree on a kind of incessant loop. I mean, when I was a kid and to this day, I, I'd go through certain phases where I'd become totally enamored uh, with a given language and literary tradition and um, and you know series of books and series of albums and this, that, and the other. And, um, you know, I mean, I even think about that passage that you just read aloud that I wrote. Um, I think I was being strategic there because if I would rewrite it now, 
I would not stop at Hebrew and Arabic. I mean, it would be impossible because I don't, mm. I mean, mm -hmm. as much as I am a believer in people in English writing with a knowledge of what English is, and I, I try and state this as clearly as I can in the interview, at the same time, I also, you know, I, I'm filled with other languages. I mean, ones that I have no connection to in terms of my heritage, like Finnish or like Hungarian or like Japanese or like Sanskrit, all of which I've studied at some point. Um, and then languages that are a part of my heritage. So on the one hand, yeah, like I did very much immerse myself in Hebrew and Arabic as a kid. Um, and that's very much a kind of locus of where I could place myself if I were to say, what is my heritage? But on the other hand, you know, my grandmother in a very traditional environment in Aleppo in the early 20th century, went to the um, Alliance Israelite, the, the, the French Jewish school in Aleppo, and she was, you know, sort of, it was, it was a rare thing for her to do, and she learned French, and that was a big piece of who she was. My great-grandmother, excuse me, I didn't mean to say my grandmother. And so I remember when I was in college and I was going through a French phase, probably the first time I read our friend Proust again, uh, my roommate was saying to me, why are you learning French? And I was like, well, my great-grandmother went to the, the school in Aleppo, and she learned French, and she was such a Francophile, and blah 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 And he was like, well, do you really think that just because your great-grandmother knew that language that you have some sort of connection to it? Yes. And I rem yeah, I remember saying to him, like, absolutely. <laughs> yes, like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> like, it's in my bloodstream. And, and not even just for the incidental reason that my great-grandmother happened to learn it. I mean, everything, not to sound too Zen-Jew, but, you know, like all languages <laughs> flow through all of us. And... Um, I, I often find myself writing about this question of the the enormous inventory of a given person's soul, and I feel like at least a good portion of mine has to do with a great deal of languages, some of which are separated by continents and oceans and don't have an obvious connection to one another. But, you know, I mean, my great-great-great-grandfather was a translator in Iran, so why shouldn't I learn Persian, which, by the way, is what I'm doing today. So, <laughs> nice. you know... Right, right. No, it's 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 really, it's really fascinating how I mean. But you, see, you're learning them as an adult, right? You're learning some of these new. I mean, obviously Hebrew and Arabic you had growing up, but as an is there a difference between learning a language later in life and trying to sort of incorporate it into your your sort of overall constitution, so to speak, and these languages that are kind of buried in you. Or, or do you think those languages that you're learning are kind of buried in you in some sort of genetic sense? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, uh, if we think about Finnish, um, which became an obsession for me uh, a couple of years ago, I do think that's a part of who I am, but not in a kind of, I can't trace it to any family member. I mean, no, no, there's no one in my heritage that, that has ever touched that, that body of, of land. Mm. Um, and well, you never know, because you, you, I, I think you have some, some sort of Russian background at some point, right? And, and Finland was well, I have no close to tied to Russian in a way. <laughs> Maybe not, I don't know. Uh, well, no, I, my grandparents are very proud of the fact that we don't have any Ashkenazi Jewish background. Okay. Mind you. <laughs> They're quite racist. Okay. Um, <laughs> but uh, in any event, um, yeah, so I think that like the Finnish, the, the, the literary adventure that I went on as an adult um, very much spoke to a certain part of me. And I do think that's different than Hebrew and Arabic. But also, 
you know, I, I really hated Hebrew growing up. I didn't care about it. I wanted to learn French or German or something. Well, you were learning it probably from, what, in Hebrew school, right? Exactly. Yeah, no, I was in yeshiva from pre-K to 12th grade. I'm sorry to hear that. (laughs) It was was what it was. I'm more kind on it now than I used to be. But, but yeah, no, I didn't care. And it wasn't until actually I read Amos Oz that, that it, it all changed for me. And I, I remember I, I spent an entire summer in my junior to senior year of high school with a tutor um, working from the ground up in modern Hebrew because I, I knew almost nothing. And I mean, I knew tons of Hebrew material by heart. I mean, it was a language that was written on my, my soul very much so. But modern Hebrew was, I mean, I couldn't have a conversation in Hebrew to save my own life. So I had to really, really actually start from scratch. And um, I would come into the tutoring sessions and I would bring a, a book by Amos Oz or Edgar Kerat, who I liked at the time, and other writers. And I would say, you know, how what's going on here? What's this? How do you say this in Hebrew? And it, it was a long process. And I ended up, you know, spending my, after having been in the remedial Hebrew class my entire life, my senior year in high school, I was in the high class and it became a a thing I came with to college. And Arabic was the same thing. I started learning Arabic in college. I had heard a ton of Arabic. Arabic is as smooth on my tongue, I like to think, as English. Um, I'm always proud when people sort of say, oh, are you from, you know, sometimes they think I'm from Egypt, sometimes they think I'm from Syria, I'll take whatever they're willing to give. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's it's very close to me, but I had to study it. You know, I had to actually formally sit down. I couldn't read the alphabet. It was all squiggles to me. I, I couldn't speak a sentence, really. I mean, I knew like proverbs and assorted phrases, mostly having to do with food. And um, so I had to formally study it. And I think to go back to your question of what the main difference is between adulthood and childhood is, you know, I remember I had a huge obsession with ancient Greece in, I don't know, it must have been like elementary school, fourth or fifth grade. And I was completely helpless. You know, I'm not going to go learn ancient Greek as a whatever age I was in fourth grade. As an adult, I've actually been able to act on my obsessions. I mean, and there are so many resources to learn languages nowadays. So, So many of them are free. So, you know, I've I've tried to, I'm not the most successful of sort of maniac polyglots, but I've certainly tried to honor my obsessions. Right. But you know what I I was trying to get at is that when you grow up with a language as a child, it's, it's different. It's different. Even if you get to be a a scholarly, get a scholarly knowledge of it as you grow older, it's just different. And that's what I was trying to get at, um, at that uh, that little quote that you do you you know th- for your translation. I'm always articulating myself somewhere between Hebrew and Arabic, whether I want to or not. You know, it's that that kind of in betweenness. Even though you're writing in English and you're thinking in English, underneath these these older languages that sort of you grew up with uh, are having their influence. That's you know, and, and and you have a different understanding of them, and therefore. Uh, like, like, well, let's 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 name the book that you were talking about when you talk about Finnish, right? It's Walter Kilpie's uh, Alastalon Salisa. Is that how you pronounce it? Alastalon Salisa. <laughs> yeah, which sounds really fascinating, and and I'm just like you know chomping at the bit to read it. Of course, there's still no translation. Uh, the, I know, I believe you're working on it with the with the, the sort of the original translator, right? Yeah, I help him out. Right, right. Um, so, so there's that tension between. A native language and a learned language. And the reason why it's kind of important to me is because I'm stuck. I'm stuck. I don't really have a solid grounding, either Russian or Hebrew. 
my 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 English is kind of a more of an adult language that I've learned as a teenager. So I I feel a little bit like a like an orphan linguistically. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Which I don't I don't know. Actually, maybe you don't because you didn't have you don't have that. I mean, I, I find very few people who are in my position where they've moved so much during their childhood that they don't really have a quote-unquote native language. Yeah, I mean, I do think that your experience is unique, and I'd, I'd love to hear more about it, and it, it, it can be an enriching thing as much as an anxiety-producing thing. But I also think that there are that, that it's becoming more and more acceptable to be hybrid in some form. Um, That's true, yeah. But, but that doesn't solve the problem. I mean, the fact that it is socially and politically acceptable to say, I'm a Russian, Israeli, American, whatever, doesn't mean that if you were to sit down and write a poem you would know, you know, what script to write it in or what words to use or, you know, mm -hmm. like it, it, the, the, the skin of my English has, you know, Hebrew and Arabic viruses crawling under it. And um, <laughs> that's a great metaphor. <laughs> it, uh, it, they're there and there's nothing I could do about it. And that, that is absolutely different from Finnish, which is something I sort of took to in, I, I don't like the word scholarly because I I just avoid everything that is associated uh, with that. Yeah, we're with you on that one. Sure. Yeah, said the Princeton graduate student. But in any event, <laughs> I um, it was an interest. It was a, it was it was really outside of the wheelhouse, which I guess partially is what made it attractive. I mean, there's a long history of people who go on deep dives in search of languages very far out of their out of their realm, and that's the most exciting thing to them about them. But you know, if I had to really sort of boil down the languages that that inhabit me and haunt me, um, they are limited. It's not infinite. And they are something that I have to contend with. It's an open question. It's a problem. It's Hebrew and Arabic. It's my great grandmother's French. It's my father's Ladino. It's uh, the Aramaic of the Talmud. It's, you know, any number of different sort of you know, I, I wish I could, I wish I, instead of being a Syrian Jew from the United States who likes world literature, I wish I could have been a Syrian Jew born in Syria who just, you know, speaks Arabic and prays in Hebrew. That would be a lot simpler. But um, I don't know. Here, I'm still standing, so. Mm -hmm. um, I do want to, um, before we go, we are getting to about um, an hour. So we're kind of getting towards uh, the end. I What I do want to do, Josh, is... Um, uh, we do have uh, listeners, uh, we have quite a few listeners actually in Egypt, and we do have listeners who are, um, I believe, bilingual in English and Arabic. So I, I want to make sure that before we finish up that um, you can please point out perhaps three uh, writers um, of Arabic that uh, are untranslated and in your estimation, you know, really worth checking out? Because we do have, I think, some listeners who, who can go to those original texts. Well, I mean, obviously I'm going to say Selim Berakat because he's sort of uh, sometimes feels like the be-all and end-all um, for me in terms of modern Hebrew, or sorry, modern Arabic um, prose and poetry. Uh, he writes in both. So that that's a big name. And, and that'll take your listeners quite a while. It's uh, it's about 40 some odd books. And he's still writing. He actually just sent me a manuscript that he finished on Friday. And I can barely read it because it's all sort of written on receipts and medical bills. But uh, and I, <laughs> I, I love that you're in contact awesome. with these writers, too. I, I, yeah. oh, I, I do my best. Brilliant. I do my best. Um, 
it feels a little bit, I'm thinking of Zen Jews, it does feel a little bit, or when I have to defend it to someone, I compare it to kind of like seeking out a, like being a kind of dutiful disciple, seeking out a teacher yeah. and reaching mm -hmm. out to people who, who I've identified with. But um, anyway, so Salim Barakat is like top of the list. And, um, you know, I mean, Samir Nakash, I mentioned in the article, or rather in the interview as well, um, he has a new book out in English. Uh, it's called um, Tenants and Cobwebs. The translation is problematic for a variety of reasons I won't get into. Um, and to be honest, your listeners in Egypt or elsewhere are going to have two problems with it. Number one, I mean, if they're reading in Arabic, that is. Number one, they're not going to be able to get a hold of the copy because most of Nakash's books were published in Israel and exist in boxes in his wife's uh, house. And number two, um, they're written almost entirely in Iraqi colloquial dialects. So they're a bit difficult to sort of push your way into as a, a speaker of Egyptian or Moroccan or whatever. But if you can read some of his stuff, and some of his stuff is, is easier than other stuff, it, it, it's absolutely... Um, he is an unsung hero of Arabic literature, not just because he was an Iraqi Jew living in Israel writing in Arabic. That's that's the, the the way that everyone talks about him. And people do talk about him, but they talk about him like that. But he was also, I mean, he was such an inventive writer. I mean, the man wrote, he wrote a, a Ulysses in Arabic, a, a novella in which there's a kind of analog for Bloom and um, Stephen Dedalus, and they have a kind of meet. It's, it's a fascinating little thing. He's, he's a great writer. And I guess the third, um, I should be optimistic and say that actually a lot of the writers that I think about are starting to get translated, and there are uh, young, there's a young cohort of people who, who do take Arabic seriously as literature in a literary way and are translating it um, with that in mind. I really like Maha Hassan. She's also a Syrian Kurd, lives in Paris now. Um, I'm actually just looking at my bookshelves as we talk. Uh, I like Ahmed Abdel Latif. He's an Egyptian. And Mustafa Zikri is also an Egyptian and does nice stream of consciousness things. Um, yeah, I mean, you, your listeners, anyone who's interested in Arabic should feel free to reach out to me and I can actually, I have a running list that I keep. Uh, which I don't know by heart, otherwise I would keep naming names, but I actually have a list of Arabic writers that I want to get to eventually that I know will be worth my time when I do get to them and that I would recommend to someone who's looking for something other than Nagima. Wonderful. And and Josh, can you give us your, uh, whether it's your Twitter uh, handle or whoever you'd like people to reach you, if you can throw yeah, that out right now? Absolutely. So um, my Twitter handle, which I don't know by heart because I, <laughs> I avoid the website when I can, is at Josh Calvo. Two two zero. That's uh, J O S H C A L V O two two zero, and my email, which you can uh, write me at um, whenever you like, is Joshua C two two zero at Gmail. So J O S H U A C two two zero at Gmail dot com. Wonderful. Um, uh, yeah, are we are we at time, or do you guys? Yeah. Want to hear oh, can I just have to squeeze in one last question, Josh? Please, oh, yeah, mind? Because yes. uh, yeah. I really enjoyed the writing, uh, your writing uh, in this interview, and I, I I sense that you were you have a writerly soul through Thanks. and through. 
And could you tell us a little bit maybe uh, what you're up to? Is there anything being published? Are you, is, you know, just because I, I would like to, I would like to see more from you, I, you know? Well, I would be happy to send you and anyone who happens to reach out to me uh, pieces of what I'm working on. But um, I am uh, unpublished uh, at the moment. And um, I, I, I don't know if I should say not for lack of trying. I've tried a little bit, but not, probably not hard enough. I, it's a bit of a rat race that I'm uh, anxious to run. I'm working on two novel-length manuscripts. Um, they're both at about 40,000 um, words so far. Uh, one is called Home on the Range, and it's a kind of um, love song to Aleppo and Aleppo's Jews, and um, is a. It's got characters and images and scenes from all across history, and I actually have to contend with what we were talking about before about how to do research um, without sort of weighing the imaginative mm -hmm. um, quality of the book down by, by that research. And then the other thing I'm working on is, um, I don't know what to call it, it's, uh, it's an account of a 24-hour Yom Kippur experience. And it's 40,000 words, and I'm not even finished with the morning service. Oh, wow. So we'll see how long it can go. Josh, um, do you sleep? What, what, how do you do this? Man, this is incredible. Well, I did go to sleep at five last night, so that was not entirely <laughs> wise. <laughs> but I, um, I, I try my best, and I, I do feel lonely sometimes with my writing. So I, I'm, I'm very yeah. eager to get myself out there. And it can feel particularly lonely to be, as we were saying before we started recording, in, in the, the academic side of things where um, the pure love of literature, as I think the phrase you guys used, is, um, let's just say, wanting. And... Um, to be someone like myself, which, you know, whether I'm a failed writer or whether I scribble some decent words down sometimes, either way, this is very much who I am, um, writing in literature. And uh, so I, it's always nice to have, you know, readers and fellow writers and readers and so on and so forth. Yeah. Well, you know, and I'll we'll be consuming some of that. We'll, I'll, I'll, reach, I'll be reaching out to Josh for yeah. sure. I'll and, look and, to. and, you know, Josh, I, I can definitely say the the very tiny Twitter community around this podcast is is pure love of literature and and we've met uh, incredibly passionate people who um, love to share what they're reading and are very supportive of you know the books that we've been chatting about so so you might find a little bit of uh, online love um, around the podcast or at least we hope so um, but you know we would love to have maybe uh, I think Roman I'm, I'm sure you'd agree if we can kind of maybe check in with you on a regular basis. And, and I just love chatting with you. Um, it's yeah, really stimulating. So I hope that maybe this can become a, uh, a regular, uh, chat that we can have, but, uh, oh, um, I would love that. Okay. Well, that's great. I think, you know, we, we only scratched the surface of a lot of things, uh, today, but, um, it was really just awesome and stimulating. And yeah, um, and I, I would urge our, our listeners to really go read this interview at the untranslated blog um, with Josh, because it's uh, it's just so rich. There's so much yeah. stuff there. Yeah, and I tweeted it out um, this morning because I wanted people to have that reference. So, um, so I think with that, we'll we'll sort of wrap it up. And again, we we thank Josh so much for appearing. Thank and you, um, yeah, it's great. And so, um, of course, if you want to follow Roman, he is uh, at Zenju. 
my Twitter handle is Robert Fay one And I also want to give a shout out to uh, Heston Hoffman, who is our uh, sound engineer. And so he's been working diligently uh, in the background. So we appreciate that. And I also want to point out that our next podcast, we will be uh, looking at the South African writer uh, Kutsea. And we're going to be looking at... Um, is it the uh, Master of Petersburg? The Master, the Master of Petersburg. Yeah, it's a, yeah. a Dostoevsky novel, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. And, and Heston actually will be joining us uh, for a discussion on that. So we look forward to that. And so, again, uh, thanks so much, Josh. Uh, you know, continue onward with your, your, your studies and your writing, man. And get some thanks sleep. Thanks so much. Oh, get yeah, some well, sleep. Really. I'm off <laughs> to Thanks, Josh.